I have a little story to read to you about this parasha. <clears throat> it says, the, uh, the rabbi told his congregation, Next Shabbat, I plan to speak about lying. To help everyone better understand my drash, like his sermon, read all 66 verses on the story of Levan, you know, Laban, in Genesis chapter 33. The following Shabbat, as the rabbi prepared to give his drash, he asked for a show of hands from his congregation on how many members had read all 66 verses of Genesis 33. Almost every hand went up. He smiled and said, Genesis 33 only has 54 verses. Now, let's get on with the discussion of the sin of lying. <laughs> I don't know, is Genesis 33 even about Laban? I didn't make up that story. But I was like, hey, it's for this week. I better, I better share, that, th- share that story or I'll have to wait a whole year to get to share it again. Um, th- we didn't read, read that, this section of the Parsha. Um, hopefully we've, we've read it at home in the last week and I won't, I won't get a show of hands on that one because I don't want to tempt you to lie if you haven't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, th- this is also the story where Laban pulls the switcheroo on Jacob and he wakes up in the, in the morning uh, with the wrong woman, which I'm sure... Um, caused some consternation for him and uh, maybe some emotional stress. Anyway, yeah, you could say there was some... uh, Actually, I read another uh, story kind of similar to that I thought you'd appreciate. A couple's happily married life almost went on the rocks because of the presence in the household of old Aunt Emma. For 17 long years, she lived with them, always crotchety, always demanding. Eventually, the old girl passed away. On the way back from the cemetery, the husband confessed to his wife, Darling, if I didn't love you so much, I don't think I would have put up with having your Aunt Emma in the house all those years. His wife looked at him aghast. My Aunt Emma? She cried. I thought she was your Aunt Emma. So there's an alternative strategy for uh, being taken, taken care of in your senior years. If you can somehow trick a family like that. So um, th- this parasha, it, I was reading through it. <clears throat> Excuse me, I was reading through it. You know, I, like Thursday mornings, I, I bind my tefillin, my, like, my phylacteries, and I get on my tallit and get myself all wrapped up in it. And then I, I read through the portion in Hebrew, right? And uh, <clears throat> usually I like to take some time to stop, to really, if there's something that stands out to me, I'll really stop and contemplate over that and really let the Spirit maybe take... Take me, take me on on that thread in terms of uh, where where it's going to go, and um, you know. So I'll read a little bit, and then there'll be long um, silences, like uh, dead air, I guess. And then I'll read some more, and then you, then you'll hear me thinking some more. And I, I have to admit, this week I just read through the whole portion without stopping once. Hey, <laughs> Genevieve, um, it's just there isn't as much like deep devotional material in this parsha. It's a story about a. You know, it's a story about a guy who leaves home. He ends up with several wives and uh, with some really problematic in-laws. And uh, eventually he goes back home to his dad. And, I mean, you know, he comes back with a fair bit of money, too. And, uh, like, that, that's, the, that's the general storyline. So that's why, you know, when it comes to portions like this, it's, it's good to remember that we're reading family history, primarily. But it's not just any old family. It's a family that's based on a covenant. And it's a, it's, it's a covenant with the God who created this universe. And for that reason, this portion is about Him. 
Even though sometimes, some passages in the Bible, maybe you notice, they don't seem like they're directly about him. Like you read it and you're like, you know, that just didn't do anything for me. And it sure didn't do anything for me spiritually. But we can remember every passage, even if it's not directly, indirectly, it's about him. So uh, that's what we can remember as we read through this. Um, I, I, I'm really appreciating the concept of journey right now. Just realizing that I'm on a journey, my family is on a journey, everyone that I meet is on a journey. We've been talking about that for several weeks already. And uh, this, this Parsha is no different. This is the story of Jacob, of Yaakov. This is the story of his literal journey to uh, Padanaram. But it's also the story of his journey by which he begins to come to faith in the God of his dad and the God of his grandpa. That was a process that took several decades. I think that's notable. Jacob didn't just pray the sinner's prayer and convert overnight. I mean, you know, he, he came from a family of faith. But, uh, but you'll notice in, in Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 to 22, and I don't trust any of my references after that uh, little reading scandal there. Um, Wow, it's actually right. Okay, Genesis 28, <clears throat> verse 20. He makes a vow as he's, uh, as he's leaving the land of Israel, or Canaan as it was called then. And he says, if God will be with me, and uh, it's, it's conditional, if, he'll, if he'll, um, he'll keep me on this journey that I take, will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then Yahweh will be my God. So he says a prayer, and he gives some very specific um, specifications. You know, he says, if he provides for my needs, if he keeps me safe, and if he brings me back here in one piece, then Yahweh is going to be my God. So there was this trial period, eh? And as it turned out, this trial period lasted two solid decades. It was a time in which Yahweh, the God of his dad and his grandpa, was proving himself to Jacob. And the cool thing is, when Jacob prayed that prayer, he wasn't struck by lightning on the spot for his audacity, or for his relative lack of faith, or for, uh, for, being, for being another Esau. You know, Esau was a man of, you know, not a very big faith. Esau was kind of the, like we talked about last week, the quintessential spiritual loser or whatever, right? But, but, but Jacob, Jacob was different. Jacob was different. He took this vow, and then, and then off he goes. And uh, let me ask you, while Jacob was gone for those 20 years, did Yahweh prove himself to Jacob? What are some ways that he proved himself to Jacob? He, he increased his flocks. He increased his flocks. He increased his property. And his property. Uh, he increased his children. And his children. He gave him a whole football team of sons. <laughs> or a hockey team. That he, he made him quite wealthy. I mean, in the ancient Middle East, you didn't, you didn't count your wealth by the figure in your bank account. You counted it by how many sheep you had, right? <laughs> and other forms of livestock. It was a little more visible, I actually. The irony is actually so thick in that story, isn't it? Like exactly as he, how he treated his dad, that's how Laban treated him. If not, maybe a little worse, I don't know. He certainly got a, a taste of his own medicine. But just think about this for a second. I mean, who Elohim, who God was then, is who He is today. And uh, that same relationship that our forefathers and our foremothers had with Him, that's the relationship that we can have with Him. So if He was a God who wanted to prove Himself to Jacob and was willing to do that in practical ways, what are the chances are that He wants to do that for you today? For us as a community of disciples even? You just think about that for a moment. I... To me, that really evokes like a romantic understanding of our Creator. Like, 
He doesn't want, just expect you necessarily to believe in Him and boom, obey. Although, you know, hopefully we can do that. It's like He's willing to come into our lives and prove Himself to us. He's willing to come into our lives and court us. Like to win our hearts, to really win our trust. It evokes, in my mind, it evokes the whole like classic story of the knight in shining armor who who wins the hand of the fair maiden. In this in this story, like Jacob is the fair maiden and Yahweh is the knight in shining armor, and uh, and the fair maiden wants the, the knight to prove himself to her that uh, that she can trust him. And uh, Yahweh comes through with flying colors in this parasha. He consistently provides for Jacob. He, uh, he, he protects him. He uh, communicates with him supernaturally through th- things like dreams. Uh, he gives him some very innovative agricultural and business practices. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating read. So anyway, on a personal level, that's something that each of us can take away from this story. How is the Almighty proving himself to you? How does he want to prove himself to you? Maybe there are areas in your life where you need to let go and let Him prove Himself to you. If we're proving ourselves to ourselves all the time and controlling everything in our lives, sometimes it doesn't give Him, give him any room to come through for us, to display His faithfulness, to, to show us His power, to come through for us. So um, that, that's something that really jumped out at me as, as I was reading this. Uh, the, along the line of dreams too, this is a more practical thing. Did you notice that Jacob was given a very, some very innovative business practices, uh, agricultural techniques in a dream. I mean, I don't know. I, I've never heard of any shepherds or ranchers trying that. You know, well, maybe if I put certain sticks with that are like have stripes cut in them or whatever, then all of the uh, livestock stock will be striped or whatever. But uh, uh, Jacob did this, and, and evidently it worked. And you know, in his conversation with. Uh, with uh, Leah and with Rachel in the next chapter, he's like, and you know, um, actually, I'd like to read that because it's it's profound. Uh, the Holy One speaks to him in a dream in uh, thirty-one verses ten to thirteen, thirty-one ten to thirteen, and he says. Um, it came about at the time when the flock were mating, and I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream. And behold, the male goats were mating with the stripes speckled and mottled. Then the angel. Then the angel of Elohim said to me in the dream, Yaakov. And I said, Here I am. He said, Lift up your eyes and see that all the male goats, etc. I've seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. He's reminding him of his vow. Then what does he say? Now get up, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. That was in a dream. I don't think that the Holy One would only communicate with these guys in a special way like that and then leave the rest of us out in the cold generations later. Because He is the same He is the same then as He is now. So if He communicates to His people through dreams, I believe that that is part of our birthright. That's part of what He has for us. Uh, a lot of us, I don't think we've had spiritual dreams. Um, why? It may simply be because we live in a society where dreams are not taken very seriously. Uh, they're often laughed off or attributed to the anchovies that you ate at one o'clock before going to bed. And you know what? Um, that's probably very sensible sometimes. We probably shouldn't take all of our dreams seriously. But I kind of wonder if, if the Holy One doesn't want to communicate with us through dreams more often. And maybe our minds are simply close to it. Maybe it's something that we don't really want. Uh, James, what did he say? You don't have 
whatever because you don't you haven't asked for it. I, I wonder what that would look like. Um, even when we were praying, I think it was you, Linda. You quoted that passage from Joel where you said, "I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your old men will dream dreams." So when he pours out his spirit, there will be that accompanying phenomenon of dreams that are meaningful, that have spiritual significance. And uh, especially if you're at the age of retirement or something, apparently. I don't know why it says that. Maybe younger guys like me don't sleep as much, so we, we get the visions and then the, the, uh, the, the more elderly characters in the congregation get dreams. I'm not sure how it works. Um, you have more time. Yeah. So, I mean, like, th- that's something that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years. I've tried to start taking my dreams more seriously. Like, I write them down in my journal. Okay, I type them down in my journal. I have to be literal here. Um, and, and you know what? There have been times when I've been able to look back and say, yeah, that dream, uh, he was communicating something to me through that. Uh, it was confirming something that he was speaking to me through the Word or that gave me an insight into a situation in my life or whatever. And uh, on a very practical level, if that's something that God gave Jacob, I believe that's something that God wants to give each one of us also. Uh, of course, we shouldn't expect that our main guidance is going to come to us through dreams. Um, look at it this way. If we are people of prayer and we're investing solid time in prayer on a regular basis, if we're strong in His Word and we're doing the stuff He says in His Word, then maybe, the, maybe dreams are like the icing on the cake or the cherry or something. You know, they're, they're a little something that maybe he'll give every now and then. Um, my, my grandfather, my dieta, have any of you gone to meet him? He and, my, he, and my, he and my Baba were at the wedding. Um, a couple of you were at the wedding. Yeah, anyway, he's, he's, he's a really cool guy. Because, um, I mean, like, he, he's a believer... But he's not the type of guy who prays for hours a day, if you know what I'm saying. He's like, he's a real farmer. He's a down-to-earth farmer. Um, you know, he has like the kind of, kind of mind for mechanics and for, for things like that. But um, he has this intuitive side that saved his life so many times through his farming career. Like he has a really spiritually sensitive side. And uh, he's told me that he had numerous times when uh, he would have a problem with the combine or with the tractor. And he just could not figure out. He'd worked on it for hours or maybe days. And uh, he just maybe was up, he was up late at night working on this thing. And finally he just had to go to bed. So he goes to bed, turns off the light in the shop, go to bed, right? And uh, in, his, in, in a dream, he would see the piece and he would see exactly what needed to go where or what had to be machined in the right, in the right dimensions. And he would get up in the morning, he would go to his shop, he would try it, and it would, it would fit perfectly or it would work. And he had that happen on numerous occasions. And I don't know if that was a spiritual dream from the Holy One. I mean, it does say all good gifts are from the Father, so I would assume that it was. Maybe it was just his mind actually sorting things out once he you know, was in a more relaxed state. But I, that would be an example of how dreams don't just have to be spiritual things. I believe that God can give us innovative business ideas. He can give us um, practical solutions in dreams. Maybe it's just something that it wouldn't hurt to ask him for more, more often. And, and uh, that isn't the uh, end of the story when it comes to dreams in the Torah either. As we'll see, there were, there were, stuff, there were stuff about dreams in pre- previous Parshas and there's going to be in the future too. Um, the, here's, here's, a, here's, a, here's a proverb from the Talmud. Uh, an uninterpreted dream is like an unopened letter. That's kind of a traditional Jewish saying about dreams, which is interesting. How much unopened mail do you have? Um, Linda, you had mentioned how Jacob said right off the bat, Yahweh's going to be my God and I'm going to cut him a tenth of everything. It's almost like he understood from the very beginning that there was this uh, requirement in the covenant that if Yahweh's your God, he gets a tenth of the stuff. 
And uh, that's, that's interesting for two reasons. Firstly, that was a custom that Abraham also practiced. He cut Melchizedek a tenth of the stuff. right? So that tells us this wasn't just a Jacob thing. This was something that ran in the family. Um, it also is interesting because this was generations before the inauguration of the Levitical priesthood. This was uh, several centuries before the Mosaic Covenant was instituted. So that tells us that this whole concept of giving the Almighty a tenth of our, our income or whatever, it preceded the giving of the Torah. Um, it says in Genesis 26.5 that Abraham actually, he kept God's mitzvot, God's commandments. So I think we could infer from that that cutting a tenth is one of the commandments of God. Now where that tenth goes is another question. I think the main point is just do it. Cut him that tenth. And... Uh, that's part of the covenant. And it's going to be a reminder that this covenant with the Almighty, it isn't just like uh, something based on our feelings. It isn't just something that is a spiritual relationship. The covenant is something that consumes our whole lives. It, our covenant-keeping God is involved in our business lives, in the financial sector of, uh, of our lives, uh, etc. I, I really appreciate that fact, personally. Th- this is something I, I find uh, a little puzzling. Uh, sometimes you'll have religious leaders who will, who will vehemently claim that the law is done away with. It's been nailed to the cross. It no longer applies to the believer today, except for the law of tithing. That's the one that, it's just, I don't know, that one's like the favorite, you know? And I haven't been able to figure that out. I mean, if you, if you teach that the law is done away with and nailed to the cross, then, you know, that's your choice, but don't try and bring, bring some of it back. I mean, let's not play uh, pick and choose here with the, the, with the scriptures, you know? I, in my opinion, either the, the, whole, the whole word of God, the whole Torah, is valid and applies to us, or none of it does. So I think we need to make up our minds and not just... Uh, not just um, import the, the commandments that, that we like or that are advantageous to us. And that applies to each one of us in this room, right? It's way too easy to take our scissors and just go snip, 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 you know. Do this mitzvah, I don't really feel like doing this one, or that one looks too Jewish, or blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, if it's in the Word, if Yeshua did it, it's good enough for us as His disciples. Let's learn to turn to First John also. Um, we looked at the first four chapters last Shabbat. Let's look at the last chapter this Shabbat. I want to look at two terms. We defined uh, ten terms in First John this last Shabbat. We looked at the, these terms and we said, okay, what's the pop understanding of these terms? And then what was John's understanding as a, as a deeply Jewish apostle, as someone who thought and expressed himself in Hebraic terminology? First uh, John chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Amen? It's true. Now let me ask you, what do, what do a lot of people call Jesus today, as a matter of course? Even people who don't even believe in Him. Jesus Christ. Christ is His last name, right? Jesus Christ, that's His name. But, but just stop and think about that. Does that mean that that person believes that Jesus is the Christ? I mean, I don't know, I'd kind of like to do this sometime, maybe I will, but I would kind of like to do an interview with people, let's say at the mall or something, and just say, what does the word Christ mean? You know, Jesus is the Christ. What does that actually mean? It would be interesting just to hear people's, uh, people's opinions. I, I, I think for a lot of us, that word doesn't connect in Western society. And the reason is, Christ comes from the Greek term Christos, and that whole concept is only understandable in uh, the Jewish world. It's only understandable in the context of national Israel. 
And uh, because, I mean, as a Western culture, we're pretty seared in general from our Judeo-Christian heritage. And, you know, even in the body of Messiah, to some degree, we're, we've, we're, we've distanced ourselves some from those Hebraic concepts. Often, just the fact that Jesus is the Christ, we, we, we miss the idea there, hey? So maybe we can look at that for a second. Uh, Christ, of course, comes from the Greek Christos, which means anointed, right? And... Uh, you know, Messiah is a synonymous term in English that comes from the Hebrew Mashiach. Everybody say Mashiach. And it means anointed. Right? So Christ and Messiah, Christos and Mashiach, all of these terms go back to the concept of someone who is anointed. Um, there were three main figures throughout the history of Israel who were anointed. One of them was the uh, high priest, the Kohen Hagadol. He was called the Kohen HaMashiach. He was called like the Messiah priest. Why? Because he was anointed with the holy oil. That, uh, that was his ordination. Um, then kings were anointed with the holy oil. That was uh, what was done at their inauguration. In fact, I'm pretty sure that's what's done even in England today. When a monarch is inaugurated, there's an anointing that takes place. Um, so, you know, we have that concept. And then I think there are also places where prophets were anointed. Don't quote me on that one. Anyhow... The main concept of Mashiach isn't of an anointed priest, it's of an anointed king. Uh, You remember when Saul had gone bad, and he was on the rampage, and he was out to kill David, his son-in-law. And David refused to lift up his hand against Saul. Why, Why was that? He said, I will not harm Yahweh's anointed. Do you know what he said in Hebrew? I won't harm Yahweh's Messiah. I won't harm Yahweh's Mashiach. Now, does that mean that Saul was the savior of the world? Does that mean that everybody called him Saul Christ? No, but that's the idea behind the word here. You know what I'm saying, right? So, who is a Mashiach? A king is a Mashiach. So when we call our savior Jesus the Christ, Yeshua the Messiah, what is the main idea behind that that we're calling him? We're calling him the king. And I mean, this is huge, hey? Everybody calls him Jesus Christ. Believers in him are called Christians after him being the Christ. And yet, it's so easy to forget about why he's called that. He, he, he is the king. Who is he the king of? We read about it in, uh, in Tommy's letter, Luke chapter 1. He, will, he, will, he, will, he is the heir apparent to the throne of David. Who is David king over? He was king over a specific geographical area. Over a country, it was called Israel. It's still called Israel. That is the throne that Yeshua will ascend. And he will rule over the house of Jacob. Who is the house of Jacob? Israel. It's Israel. It's, it's Israel. That includes the Jewish people. That includes, of course, believers from the nations. But just stop and think that, about that for a second. Every time you call him the Christ, the Messiah, you're proclaiming that he is the rightful king of Israel. You know, like that, you know, the, the, the West Bank and Israel, that hotly contested area in the Middle East? Every time someone calls him the Christ, they probably don't realize this, but they are saying that Yeshua is the king of Israel. And Yeshua is going to come back and he is going to inherit that whole region. Whether the media and whether a religion of over a billion people that are brought up on hatred of Jews likes it or not. That's the reality that's coming down the pipe. And remember that next time you call him the Messiah. Yeah. I mean, does that sound political? Yeah. It actually does sound political because it kind of is. Like all of those political systems out there, for instance, uh, communist China, they are on a collision course with the anointed king 
of Israel when he comes back. I don't know, maybe that's why some political systems really hate the Bible and uh, really hate this whole concept of faith in God's ultimate king. Maybe that's why. Huh? Good, guess who wins? I guess we'll have to wait and see. Oh, I, I, I know which side I'm rooting for, but I'm looking forward to improving himself on that one too, hey? Yeah. So I have to admit, like, okay, coming from a democratic society, we like the idea of, you know, the majority is right and let's all kind of hold hands and, and whoever gets the most votes is the one who wins. And I mean, I'm thankful for that. It's a system that seems to work pretty well in the West. But in the process, we've lost the concept of a king. We've lost the concept of a king who has ultimate authority, a king who is a dictator. And whether he is a, an ugly and a murderous and a evil dictator, or whether he is a kind, benevolent dictator, um, you know, there can be both. But that's the concept behind a king. And there's something that really appeals to my soul about that. I don't know, maybe it's especially my, the masculine side of my soul, but maybe not. But that whole concept of loyalty... That whole concept of like David's giborim, his warriors that stuck with him through thick and thin, because they knew that he was the king, that he was going to be the king of Israel. Just think about that for a second. Like You are riding for the cause of the heir apparent to the throne, the true king of Israel. Yes, he currently is a fugitive, just like David, on the run in the wilderness. He currently is not accepted by the majority of the people of Israel. But the king will ascend the throne. And his loyalists will be right there with him. And may that be you and me. So that's the concept. Maybe that will give us some understanding of this verse. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Does that give you more understanding of that concept? Yeah. That makes my heart come alive. (laughs) Uh, One other concept I want to touch on to define... In uh, 1 John 5, verse 2, and in 2 John, verse 6, he defines this concept of love. What does it look like to love each other? Um, Last week we looked at where he says, you know what, if you see somebody who is in need, in terms of physical needs, uh, specifically a brother or sister in the faith, and uh, you don't do anything for them, that is not love, is essentially what he said, right? Let's not just like love in terms of uh, how we talk, let's love in terms of our actions um, on a very practical level. There is another side to love that I think sometimes escapes our, our notice, and I want to look at that with you. First John 5, verse 2, he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. So what's the biggest way that I can love you in this room, my fellow disciples, according to this verse? Is it by saying, I love you, or giving you a hug, or whatever? Yeah, those are good ways. But according to 1 John 5, verse 2, the best way that I can love you is by loving God and keeping His commandments. That's a big concept, isn't it? Maybe we don't think about that, but just think about that. Like for me, by simply, uh, you know, like wearing, wearing, these, wearing these tzitzit, these um, tassels on the corners of my garment. This, this is primarily about loving my Father in Heaven. Because this is something He said for His people to do. But... Uh, correlatively, when I, when I put these things on, it's also express, it's an act of love to the body of Messiah. It's an act of love to my brothers and sisters in the faith. Why? Because when I put these on, I'm saying, look who I believe in. Be encouraged in your faith. We are a people who are tenaciously following God. We are a people who are radical for Messiah. 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, you could really take that theme and run with it. You could look at every single one of the mitzvot, the commandments, and just say, okay, I know how this is loving God, but how is this also loving the body of Messiah, my brothers and sisters? Think about this for a second, too. Uh, Statistically, there have been more Jewish people who have come to faith in Yeshua in the last 40 years than in the last, like, 40 times 40 years. 1,600 years put together. Like, there have been a lot of Jewish people who have come into the body in, in, the, in this last generation. And uh, that, requires, that requires some uh, attitude overhauls. That requires some change in terms of how we express our faith for the greater body. It's like, oh man, Paul the Apostle, he would be like screaming for joy if he was around today to see the Messianic Jewish movement. It, it, it was like his prayers are being answered. His heart's desire is coming to pass. And uh, how do we love the Jewish people whom God is bringing into the kingdom? It's like this big party event, right? Well, he, he, here, here, here's a great su- suggestion. What we're doing in this congregation is one of the biggest ways that the body of Christ can just begin to welcome um, those Jewish people and, uh, and show them that love. You know, when we, when we do stuff from the Torah, when we use Hebrew terms like calling Jesus Yeshua, every time we do that, we're saying, I love you to all the Jewish souls who are coming into the kingdom. It's like saying, I am making room for you. I want to talk your language. I want to do the stuff that you do so that you will feel comfortable, so that you will be at home in, uh, in our faith community. And that's, that's our vision as a congregation. And uh, it's not just for us in Prince Albert. Like, this is our vision. We, we are casting a vision to the greater body of Messiah. He's using us as a voice to the Christian community to say, guys, Jewish people are coming to faith. Let's give them a huge welcome home. Let's show them that love, right? Yeah, let's keep showing that love to our Israeli friends at the mall and inviting them over. Absolutely. That's encouraging that she misses us when we're not around, hey? So hopefully that gives us a broader context for doing some, doing some stuff. You know, like, wearing the strings. Okay, I mean, it's a little weird, right? It's like, it's a little, uh, I don't know, maybe it can even look legalistic. I mean, seriously, doing some Old Testament stuff can look legalistic. Okay? It's like, how can you put strings on your pants and have that as a way to tell God that you love Him, right? But hopefully just talking about it like that will give us more of a context for how it's not just loving God, but it's saying, I love you to the whole nation of Israel, hey? And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just singling out strings on the pants because it's kind of... It's one that's, yeah, it's like right, right there, right? But there, there are lots of examples of stuff from the Torah that we can do along those lines. Um, that's a good place to start anyway. I think I'd like to wrap it there. I'd like to take about two minutes and just hit a couple of practical things from First John and from Jude that we can um, that we can remember throughout the week. First um, John five says we can have confidence that if we pray anything according to God's will, He's 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 listening to the prayer and He's going to do it. I'm paraphrasing, of course. What What is What does God want? Well, we read, for instance, in Paul's letter to Timothy, his first one, chapter 2, verse 4, he doesn't want anybody to be lost. He wants everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth. So when you, uh, let's say you add someone to your salvation hit list, people that you're praying for to be saved on a regular basis, know that God wants that, that He's hearing your prayers, and that He is going to do it. So pray for repentance for people. Pray that they'll come to the knowledge of the truth. You have a full guarantee on that one that those are prayers that are powerful. And uh, also, uh, John says, you know, if you see someone sending a sin not to death, then uh, you should pray for them. What do you pray for them? That God will really judge them for what they're doing and rub their face in the dirt because it's just... 
No, I'm just joking. He said, um, if, if you see someone sinning a sin not to death, you should pray for them that God will give them life. That God will give them life. There's just something about when His Spirit breathes that new life into a person's soul, sin drops away. So just remember that. L'chaim, right? L'chaim, to life. The classic Jewish toast. Like That's an intercessory prayer too. Um, 3 John 8, he says, you know, if there are people who have devoted themselves to doing the work of the kingdom, he says, support such men. Uh, Yeshua's kid brother, uh, Judah. Here Here are a couple doers for us from him. In 1 verse 3, he says, contend for something. This is a word Canadians don't like. It's aggressive. It's active. It involves conflict. Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, we are on a journey in our congregation to discover what that faith was. Does that faith include practicing some of the things from the uh, first five books of the Bible? Historically, there's very strong evidence suggesting that. If that's the case, then that we're, we're in a battle for that. We don't fight with people. We're talking about ideologies here, right? That's why, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm always hitting on the Torah. I'm saying Torah, Torah, you know? Because this is something that historically has come under major fire. People who just want to see the whole Old Testament, you know, let's just kind of ignore that thing and certainly not do any of it. But, why? but, but if, that, if the Old Testament is part of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, and if it's under fire, then it's our responsibility to be vocal and aggressive in standing for it. So hopefully that explains why sometimes Izzy sounds like a broken record. And uh, let's finish with this one because it's something that we can do this week. Pray in the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you, did Jude pray traditional Jewish prayers? Yeah, he did. There's very strong historical evidence from early church writings, but I won't go into that. Okay, this is kind of interesting. Jude prayed liturgically, at least at times. He prayed traditional Hebrew prayers, but he prayed them how? He prayed them in the Holy Spirit, didn't he? Now let me ask you, did Jude only pray traditional liturgy? Probably not. In the Jewish tradition at that time, there was a very strong tradition of pouring out your own heart, praying spontaneously also. So, you know, I, I just hear an invitation. If you only pray liturgically, break out of the box. Learn to pray in the Holy Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide your prayers, move your intercession, give you those, uh, those, key, those key requests. And uh, if you've never prayed liturgically before, if you've never prayed from the Siddur, the Jewish prayer book, I encourage you, uh, pick, up a, pick up a Siddur. Learn to pray some of the prayers that our Savior Himself, His original apostles like Jude prayed. Uh, you may find your prayer life becoming deeper, becoming richer, uh, coming to life in a way that you've never had it come to life before. So there's a little something there, praying in the Holy Spirit for everyone, I think. Shalom, I'm Izzy Avraham, and thank you for joining me for this talk. I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation. They're now hosted by my Hebrew school, Holy Language Institute, at holylanguage.com. If you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.